become your masters of war. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show is podcast on radio stations throughout Canada and the United States. I'm your host, Michael Welch. This show first goes to air on the day dedicated to the armistice of World War I. Today it is referred to as Remembrance Day in Canada and throughout the British Commonwealth. In the United States it's known as Veterans Day. As it states on the website of Veterans Affairs Canada, Canadians pause in a silent moment of remembrance for the men and women who have served and continue to serve our country during times of war, conflict and peace. We honor those who fought for Canada in the First World War, the Second World War, and the Korean War, as well as those who have served since then. In a nutshell, the Nazis who authorized the pogroms and the massive killing fields of death 80 years ago, they are back, and they seem to be finding space within Ukraine to flourish. On this day of remembrance, the Global Research News Hour looks into the existence of the groups of right-wing Nazi collaborators who were given a lot of room to collect and grow and express their views right here in Canada. Remembering the Holocaust has not helped us eradicate the fascist mindset that lives on in Eastern European families who came here as immigrants with an intense hatred of the Russians and who now seem to finally get the war they have been waiting for. Canadian support for Nazi collaborators after World War II, lest we forget, is the focus of this Remembrance Day edition of the Global Research News Hour. There have been competing forces in Ukraine which have existed from the time it became independent of the Soviet Union in 1991. However, the rise of Stepan Bandera admirers became evident during the Euromaidan after the coup in February 2014. Nazi-backed groups became far more dominant leading to the civil war in the Donbass region and in Crimea joining Russia. All these developments have been vastly misrepresented in the mainstream press. Nevertheless, we first ask the question, how did this situation arise? Why did Bandera and his associates become so devoted to the Nazis, and what was behind the aims of the group to ethnically cleanse Poles, Jews, and the Soviets under their Ukraine nationalist system? To answer the question, I got hold of Marco Karanik. He is a research fellow based in Toronto, Canada. While in residence at the Jack, Joseph, and Morton Mandel Center for Advanced Holocaust Studies, Mr. Karanik conducted research on his project, The Pogroms of June to July 1941. Mr. Karanik has written a number of publications, one of which was Foes of Our Rebirth, Ukrainian Nationalist Discussions About Jews, 1929-1947, to in Nationalities Papers, from May of 2011. For his J.B. and Maurice C. Shapiro Fellowship at the Mandel Center, Mr. Karanik 
examined six cities and towns in western Ukraine where both NKVD killings and pogroms occurred. Drawing on archival research, published sources, and interviews with survivors, he sought to analyze how survivors and witnesses have remembered these events to offer a new explanation of the pogroms and to shed new light on the pogroms of June to July 1941. Marko Senenik, welcome to the Global Research News Hour. It's a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. Could I get you to talk about uh, first about the Ukrainian nationalist movement in the late 1920s? It had developed a strong need to ethnically cleanse Poles, Jews, and Soviets from the region they would be calling Ukraine. Uh, did this development arise over time or uh, a particular moment or a group or, or was it consistent with Ukrainian nationalism from the start? Is that right? In the 1920s, ethnic Ukrainian territory was divided between four countries. The Soviet Union, where the Ukrainians constituted the Ukrainian Soviet Social, Poland, Romania, and Czechoslovakia. Uh, veterans, Ukrainian veterans of the First World War were very unhappy that they had established a Ukrainian state. And several nationalist groups uh, took part in uh, founding Congress in January, February, February, 1929. They formed the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, or OUN, and they um, wanted to unite all the Ukrainian inhabited territories into a single state. Uh, they proclaimed a long constitutional program and uh, acted as the uh, external voice of Ukrainian nationalists, primarily in Western Polish controlled Ukraine. Um, eventually, the domestic factions uh, came together under the OUN and began waging a campaign against the Polish authorities. And this involved various that's borrowed from the Finns, the Irish, um, the Italian fascists, and so forth. 
the, these methods included uh, terrorism, uh, bank robberies, and uh, assassinations. The um, organization split into two factions, rival factions, in 1939. Uh, they, uh, they wanted to, as I said, uh, establish uh, a, a united Ukrainian state. And to do that, they looked for support in, in various places. They looked to Britain, they looked to the United States, and they looked to Germany. None of these countries was interested in, in supporting the OUN the exception of Germany, which showed varying degrees of interest. Uh, then they, uh, the, the, these factions, um, when the World War broke out in 1939, um, looked more closely to Germany. Uh, the German leadership military and civilian was divided as to what to do. Hitler wanted not to give any support to the Nazi. The German military, on the other hand, was interested and various plans were made for cooperation with the military. The OUN had in the previous 10 years, or some members of it, had gradually moved right to the, um, showed interest in Italian fashion, fascism and uh, German Nazism. Uh, the bulk of the Ukrainian population was in the Soviet Union, of course, in the Ukrainian Republic, and uh, they uh, were recruited into the uh, Red Army, uh, some six million Ukrainians uh, were enrolled in the Red Army. Uh, in Poland, some 200,000 Ukrainians were uh, served in the Polish army. There were, uh, I think, 100,000 Ukra Ukrainian Canadians in the Canadian army. There were... Um, Ukrainians in the British army and so forth. But it was the faction, the, the Ukrainians in 
the German army, not a very large number, by the way, who <clears throat> have attracted the most attention uh, over the years. And uh, it's this group uh, that continues to arouse controversy and conflict. Mm. Yeah. Uh, could you talk briefly about the Lviv pogroms of 1941? It was a situation uh, where Ukrainian nationalists and German death squads massacred Jews uh, while the city was under German occupation. Uh, Germany attacked the Soviet Union, which Western Ukraine in, in, in view were now uh, a part in on June 22nd, 1941. Uh, German forces occupied Lviv on June 30th. Um, Ukrainian nationalists in the city um, took part in uh, programs against Jews. Uh, we have only estimates of the number of victims. The most common estimate is uh, 4,000, but that may well be an exaggeration. These figures usually are. Still, the pogrom in uh, view in uh, on June 30th, 1941, did take place. Um, the uh, Soviets who had been occupying the view had arrested uh, many Ukrainians. The four prisons in the city uh, were, were overcrowded, and instead of uh, releasing them or uh, deporting them to the east, away from the German army, as they had first thought of doing, massacred them in the prison cells. And when the Germans came in, local people discovered uh, that there were several thousand corpses in the prisons. Uh, there were claims that they had been tortured it's difficult to say what, how much truth there is in this, but they uh, did fill the prisons. This then provoked the local population to carry out problems. The theory was that Jews and therefore responsible for the uh, murders. There have been numerous studies of, of, of these events. I have looked at all the accounts that I could find 
there are many uh, photographs, there's film footage. Uh, German soldiers were under orders not to carry cameras or uh, film that is uh, still cameras or film cameras, but many did have cameras and pictures and footage of these uh, pogroms. I have no doubt that they occurred. Uh, a second pogrom occurred in view a little bit later in July 1941, uh, the 22nd of July. Uh, the Ukrainians were encouraged or assisted by German troops and uh, there were horrible scenes of uh, of murder and many vivid accounts. These pogroms occurred in dozens of places throughout Western Ukraine. And then as the German army advanced east into what had been Soviet Ukraine, um, the pogroms continued on a somewhat lesser scale. So uh, there's this background uh, to the uh, of the uh, Soviet Union and uh, this series of violent uh, events um, has become almost mythical. Uh, it has become a foundation stone of uh, Ukrainian Jewish relations to this very day. Yeah. Well, how did the the OUN manage to whitewash history and and get themselves portrayed instead as as heroic? Ukrainian resistance against the communists and the Nazis. How did they manage to lower? Yeah, well, there, well, there was, yeah, like they, they, they whitewashed history in a sense. By denying this had happened, um, I've read hundreds of eyewitness accounts. Some admit such uh, violence occurred, uh, some ignore it, and some deny it. Nothing of the sort supposedly happened, whereas the truth is that something did happen. Um, the OUN itself had by now split into two factions. They retained the same name. They did not disagree on uh, tactics, but the older and smaller faction 
made up largely of nationalists who had been living in exile in Western Europe, uh, was a bit more moderate, just a bit. It was not entirely free of uh, anti-Semitism. Uh, but the action led by uh, Stepan Bandera was uh, rabidly uh, anti-Semitic and uh, made little secret of its uh, anti-Jewish views. The Ukrainian-Canadian Congress is a, a major group representing Ukrainian Canadians, even though they are associated with the, the, the group of Ukrainian nationalists uh, we've been referring to. How did they come to be so dominant within the diaspora in Canada? How did they come to be so dominant? What did you say? Well, like they, they tend to dominate all discussion of, of Ukraine nationalists, you know, or of, of Ukraine when they don't represent every Ukrainian. No, of course they didn't represent every Ukrainian. Um, efforts were made. Uh, here in Canada to um, support um, the British effort to fight the war on Poland's side with the Soviet Union as an ally. Um, the Ukrainian nationalists, by comparison, here in Canada, um, were not very numerous, uh, did not have great support. They had tried over the years to gain support. They had sent uh, delegates on missions to raise support in Canada. But uh, most Ukrainian Canadians um, were not touched by these uh, efforts. Uh, it, it's disturbing to see uh, Stepan Bandera portrayed as a heroic figure today. I mean, his portrait was uh, visible at these uh, Maidan rallies in 2014. His name is, is yes. at... Yes. Uh, at street corners and and uh, well, monuments in in Kiev, um, yes, yeah, and uh, I, I was wondering what what do you make of the resurrection of this figure in the current political context? I mean, could we be? Does it mark the rise of Nazism or or some elements of of it in Ukraine? Stepan Bandera has become uh, a symbol, a figurehead. Uh, you must remember that uh, he did not participate 
in any of the war efforts. After the split into two factions, Bandera headed the younger and more radical faction, Banderites they're called. Um, and because of resentment in today's Ukraine, resentment at Soviet rule, in, including the uh, prison violence, the uh, killing of uh, political prisoners by the Soviets in 1941. Uh, Bandera now represents, um, expresses these uh, sentiments. He himself was not particularly voluble on the question uh, on, on Ukrainian Jewish relations. He wrote very little about this. The second in command, Yaroslav Stetsko, um, was, however, vehemently anti-Semitic from the 1930s until, um, until much later. After the war, after 1945, um, he published many articles uh, in which he denied that there had been pogroms, that Ukrainians had taken part in them, that they had um, persecuted Jews. Uh, I've written at length about his denials and uh, shown the contradictions. Bandera said very little on this subject, just a few fragments, uh, little pieces um, in which he expressed anti-Semitic views. Uh, he was not a good writer, most of the nationalists. He couldn't express himself clearly and simply. He repeated um, himself frequently, and he focused on anti-Viet uh, tactics uh, after the war, until was assassinated in Munich in 1959 by a Soviet agent who happened to be uh, uh, Ukrainian himself. And uh, he was poisoned with a poison gun. And there's a very good recent book about the assassination. Uh, the agent turned himself into the West German police and was given an eight-year sentence and repeated his, supposedly, is now living in South Africa. Um, 
So Bandera became a figurehead, statues, proclamations uh, supporting him. But you must remember that right-wing parties in present-day Ukraine have garnered only about 5% of the popular vote, less than right-wing movements in Canada or, or the United States or we uh, have done. Um, most Ukrainians today are simply not interested in uh, these parties and do not support them. Marco Karinik is a writer and research fellow based in Toronto. In our next half hour, we'll hear from a number of people who signed the petition calling on the federal government to stop supporting Eastern Ukrainian emigre groups who still glorify Nazi collaborators. Please stay tuned. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partner radio stations across Canada and the United States. We're also available for download at the site globalresearch.ca. Richard Sanders and the coalition opposed to the arms trade set up a petition. Stop Canadian government funding of groups that glorify Nazi collaborators. It reads as follows. We call on the Canadian government to stop giving financial support to Eastern European ethno-nationalist associations that whitewash their forebears' complicity in the Holocaust and other crimes against humanity. As taxpayers, we oppose our government's continued funding to monuments, publications, events, and meeting centers that are used by these Canadian groups to glorify the memory of their Nazi-collaborating founders, leaders, activists, and war heroes. 46 separate organizations have endorsed this petition. They include the Canadian Palestine Association, the Canadian Coalition Against Racism, Independent Jewish Voices Canada, the Canada Files, Ontario Committee of, for Human Rights in the Philippines, Esprit de Corps magazine, and peace groups all across the country. For the duration of this episode, we will hear testimonies from some of the signatories indicating why they signed the petition, what it meant to them on a personal level, and its significance to many Canadians, especially on Remembrance Day. For I killed my share of engines in a thousand different fights. I was there at the little big horn. I heard many men lying, I saw many more dying, but I uh, my name is Robin Philpot. I'm publisher of Baraka Books, uh, based in Montreal, uh, Quebec, for the last 40 so 40 plus years, and originally from uh, Northern Ontario. And I'm uh, I've written several books in French and some in English, and I've been publishing Baraka Books since 19 uh, since 2009. That was when we founded it. Basically, Canada and the, through the British um, agreed to receive um, thousands 
of Ukrainian, former Ukrainian members of the Waffen-SS Galizian uh, Regiment. As you remember, and these were people who had been under the leadership of Stepan Bandera. It was called the UPA, which was the uh, military wing of the Ukrainian nationalist movement. And this movement was um, a collaboration, collaboration. They were the ones who hailed the arrival of, um, of the Nazis in the Ukraine when they invaded the Soviet Union in 1941 um, and participated in pogroms against Jews, Poles, um, and others. And they, throughout the war from 41 to 45, they were active members. They were not in the Waffen-SS to start with, but then they were. And then as the war was about to end, they changed their name again. But the German command continued considering the, the Waffen-SS Galizian. Now, so after the war, they build themselves and the British and the Canadians accepted it, that they were good, hardworking people, and especially they were anti-communist and anti-Soviet, and they would help Canada. And so this they arrived in the late uh, 40s and early 50s, and included in these groups were was Christia Freeland's grandfather, um, M Michael Chomiak. Um, and so their goal was to go back um, and uh, continue the work that they had been doing uh, with the Nazis. Um, and people have, there've been all kinds of efforts to uh, clean up their history and try and pretend that it was a national struggle and they were against the Germans and the Soviet Union, which is uh, clearly a lot of hogwash. Um, the, uh, in fact, it's, it's a, I think it's an uncle, a uh, 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 Ukrainian Canadian academic, John Paul Hlinka, who pointed out that they were Nazi collaborators right through. And they were, had been, uh, there's no way you can um, change the history of that group and those people. And the man who, uh, who has a monument to him in Edmonton, or to the organization who has a monument to him in Oakville, Ontario, where there's glory to the uh, UPA, which was which was the Waffen-SS, Galician um, branch of the Waffen-SS. So they, they, these people came here, they, they um, were, they were, they built, they had buildings uh, the organization of the uh, Ukrainian Congress uh, of Canada, I can't remember what that's the exact name, um, managed to get funding from the from the federal government under multiculturalism in the early 70s, built a building, and the building where the monument is to Shukovic, uh, who was a leader of the Waffen-SS, was built with multicultural funds from the federal government. Um, and then the other monument um, is which says glory to the UPA, which is glory, and it's in Oakville, Ontario. Now, for somebody, for anybody 
who uh, fought against the Nazis, who was opposed to Nazi politics, or whose family fought against the Nazis. Uh, and in my case, it was my father fought uh, in the war um, in uh, Italy and in Holland against the Nazis. He came back, many didn't. Um, it is a, a total insult and Canada should be, should remove these um, monuments that glorify the Nazis. I would say that the reason that, that this is happening is that, and there's a man in the United States called Lasha, Yasha Levine, who, uh, a Russian American, who talks about weaponizing immigrants or weaponizing immigration. I think that's what the British in Canada wanted to do because in their desire to put an end to the Soviet Union, they thought that these people would be helpful. The Remembrance Day was started in the First World War, but the war that was the most destructive in history was the Second World War. And the, the Soviet Union lost more than 20 million people. There were six million people killed in the Holocaust, six million Jews, a lot of whom came from the area in Eastern Europe, very lot in Poland, Ukraine, um, Lithuania, and uh, they were just eliminated by the same people, by the same ideology that these people celebrate. Now they will pretend that they are just opposed to the Soviet Union, but that's not what they were doing. And the, the worst pogrom, the worst massacres of Jews in Eastern Europe occurred in the Ukraine. And the UPA, which is celebrated, participated in, in those massacres. The Canadian Jewish Congress has oppo opposed the, re the, 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 the fact that Canada received these people at the British, the behest of the British, this was in 19, late 40s, um, but the Canada overlooked what the Canadian Jewish Congress was saying about that. Now, so the 11th of November is a day when we remember the people who fought for freedom against Nazism. I, there are people who want to make it into a war kind of thing where you're going to be uh, um, trying to change it into something that it's not. But that is why people would go out and remember on the 11th is the fight for freedom in particular, uh, particularly the fight for freedom against Nazism. So today, the day that uh, of the 11th of November, 2022, um, can uh, Canadians and uh, should be saying, um, let's make it clear we're opposed to Nazism. And the way to do so is to uh, remove these monuments. If we do not do this, and in fact, we do not recognize that period and the, and the, the, the Ukrainian uh, collaboration of some Ukrainians um, that will not help us to understand what's going on now and the presence of neo-Nazis uh, that Canada has participated in training in the Ukraine and in the war right now being conducted against uh, in uh, in the Ukraine, um, Russia has talked about neo Nazis. People try and say, "Oh, it's not true. It's not true." It is very true, 
and the tradition comes back go, goes back to the period we're talking about uh, and the monuments here that celebrate and the monuments to the same people have been erected across Ukraine um, and so it is extremely important for Canadians to understand this history um, that underlies the current crisis uh, that's going on in Ukraine uh, and that Canada is participating in actively through NATO and on its own. Um, and uh, that is something we should be aware of on this day, the 11th of November, 2022. My name is Daryl Rankin. Uh, I have been uh, active in the anti-war disarmament movement for, I don't know, about 50 years. Uh, born and raised in Edmonton. It's one of many initiatives that are needed today to sound the alarm against the latest rise in the fascist danger, which is also associated with the danger of war. Um, I think that uh, no effective force has been found yet along the lines of, say, the international brigades in Spain to sound such an alarm. And it's just one of many initiatives that are needed today. That uh, holiday was declared uh, at the end of, or because of the ending of the uh, First World War, which is um, called the war to end all wars. It certainly did not. It led directly to the Second World War and to the rise of fascism because it was so destabilizing to world capitalism. Um, fascism is usually associated with a crisis in capitalism. In this case, it, most people think of the Great Depression, but also the destabilizing effect of the First World War was a big effect in the continuing rivalry between Germany and Britain. You certainly don't need a new general secretary of NATO like Freeland, who's being promoted to by Washington to take that post. Uh, Freeland wants to vanquish Russia, according to her own statements. And uh, we do need uh, to end a social system that um, only can conceive of vanquishing other countries instead of cooperating with them. For I stole California from the Mexican land, fought in the bloody civil war. Yes, I even killed my brothers and so many others, but I ain't a marching anymore. Bruce, Bruce Gagnon, I'm the coordinator of the Global Network Against Weapons and Nuclear Power in Space. Uh, I live in Maine. I grew up in a military family. We moved all over the United States and the world uh, growing up, an Air Force family. I was a young Republican for Nixon in 68, so I was indoctrinated uh, by the military schools that I attended growing up. And uh, I was a conservative as a young young guy. And uh, But then in 71, 1971, I joined the Air Force during the Vietnam War. I wanted to be like my dad. And uh, I was sent to a base in California that was an airlift base for the war in Vietnam. And it, as it turned out, my first roommate was one of the organizers in the GI resistance movement. 
So there would be meetings in my room at night. And that was where I became a peace activist. And I've been one ever since. I see Canada, along with the US and other NATO countries, uh, but Canada being one of the foremost, uh, providing massive support for the uh, essentially Nazi-led uh, war going on in Ukraine against Russia. I believe that the United States and NATO are using Ukraine as a hammer to attack Russia and their desire to force regime change there. Uh, they want to break Russia up into smaller nations, balkanize it like they did to Yugoslavia during the Clinton administration in order to grab their vast resource base. So I see that Canada is doing so much, <clears throat> excuse me, so much sending uh, not only money to Ukraine, but also <clears throat> helping to coordinate uh, military transfers of uh, equipment from other NATO countries. And then I know Canada has been uh, training a lot of uh, the Nazis that were brought into the quote unquote National Guard so they could dress them up and pretend that there, there was no longer any Nazis in the Ukrainian military. So Canada has played a key role in that. And then of course, Canada has been sending mercenaries there as well. So for all those reasons, I felt that it was important to join that statement. I went there in 2019, invited by a labor union leader in Lugansk in the Donbass in Eastern Ukraine near the Russian border. And I uh, toured there and also Donetsk, seeing the effects of the uh, shelling, largely the shelling of the Donbass region by the Nazis since 2014, after they were sent uh, from the western part of the country where they predominate to the east to attack the people in the Donbass. And uh, I learned that more than 14,000 have been killed and more than 34,000 wounded during that time. I was taken to some of the grave sites. I saw apartment blocks, civilian apartment blocks that were damaged as a result of the shelling by the Nazis. And so uh, I really came away with a deep, deep feeling, a deep sense of solidarity, like similar to what people get when they go and meet with the Palestinian people who were constantly being killed by the Israeli government. And so it was that that uh, uh, really, uh, I, I think, made more concrete for me my feelings. But I've been watching this whole situation since the coup in 2014. I watched basically in real time on video, uh, the uh, uh, 2014, May 2nd, 2014, slaughter of people inside the uh, trades union house in Odessa, uh, Ukraine, where people that were just peacefully collecting signatures, calling for a federated Ukraine, let us speak the Russian language, let us elect our local officials, still be part of Ukraine. They were attacked by the Nazis and anywhere between 50 to 100 or more were killed and uh, many have disappeared and never returned. There's all kinds of uh, evidence of who was doing these crimes. No one has ever been arrested. In fact, uh, that, that perpetrated these crimes, only the people that were uh, victims of these crimes were arrested and disappeared. So ever since that time, uh, this has been in my heart, and I virtually every day uh, since then have been on the case. We're just reading in the last uh, week or so 
that Canada's uh, politician, uh, Christia Freeland, is being considered to become the next NATO uh, Secretary General. She's the, one of the leading candidates. So it's clear that uh, for the United States and NATO, Canada is a prize because it's always had a reputation of being a neutral country, a fair country. I remember when I went to Cuba uh, on delegations back in the 1980s that uh, the uh, people there talked about Canada as a, as a friendly country you know, to the Cuban people. But all of that's changed now as the neoliberals, the neocons have taken control of our government in Washington, but also the Canadian government as well. So uh, I think it's really important for the Canadian people to wise up, wake up, figure out what's going on and speak out against their own country that is helping to push what very possibly could turn to in a red hot flash to a nuclear war. For I marched to the battles of the German trench in a war that was bound to end all wars. Oh, I must have killed a million men, and now they want me back again, but I ain't marching anymore. It's always the old... I'm a Dr. Abraham Weisfeld, a doctor, PhD in political science from the University du Québec à Montréal. And, uh, and I have always been uh, working uh, on behalf of uh, Jewish uh, Bundist uh, philosophy, which is what my mother was from the Warsaw Ghetto. And the Jewish Bund was a revolutionary socialist movement, actually, that was independent of the Communist Party, independent of the Social Democrats, and was a, independent of the Zionist uh, parties as well, and called for Jewish civil rights within the framework of their homelands, and insisted upon national cultural autonomy for the Jewish people as a nation, but not as a state. We were enthusiastic when we heard about the petition against the Canadian government's uh, support of uh, the Eastern European Nazi-oriented uh, uh, cultural or ethnic uh, or, or uh, organizations of the minority nationalities composed of the immigrants to Canada. This is very disturbing and uh, indicates uh, a fundamental flaw in what is called democracy here in the West, in particular in the United States, where freedom of expression, freedom of speech, means that uh, they end up, you know, supporting Nazis, you know, marching around. I remember being in Toronto when I, I was raised in Toronto, although I was conceived in a refugee camp in Breslau, Germany, after the war. And the Nazis there they used to, you know, parade around, demonstrate in front of City Hall, you know, insisting that the Holocaust, you know, was a myth. And uh, nobody did anything about it, you know, like, and this guy, you know, like, the leader of it, you know, this Nazi Zundel, he wasn't even a Canadian citizen, you know, then or now. And he was eventually expelled from Canada and sent to Germany, which uh, didn't treat him, you know, uh, like Canada did. He was put into prison for three years immediately and uh, his movement dissolved. But the younger Nazis, you know, are a problem. And then when it's mixed, you know, with uh, nationalism uh, and national identity, which is quite legitimate, of course, it becomes... Uh, uh, concealed for what it is, you know, which is uh, an ideology and not an identity. So the Ukrainians in particular are, are afflicted, you know, with such um, uh, tendency because of uh, Bandera, who was the Nazi militia leader in uh, the Second World War. 
and uh, the anarchist leader of the Ukrainian National Liberation Movement in the First World War, during the Civil War, uh, Makhno is not even mentioned by the Ukrainians, you know, who, uh, you know, uh, honor and cherish Ukrainian history. But nonetheless, it's the Nazi that is being honored and <laughs> being extolled by the Ukrainian government this time. So this is a very serious problem. It's not something that, you know, like a few people, you know, on the marginals, you know, like are, are playing with. No, this is a serious problem. And it's being supported and funded by the Canadian government. Remembering the, the martyrs who died, died for what? They died to fight Nazism, but they don't say that. So let's say it and let's stop, you know, funding Nazis, you know, here in Canada amongst the various, you know, cultural organizations, you know, who claim to represent that, that whole nationality. Let's stop funding the Nazis. And let's say that the Second World War was fought to stop the Nazis, stop fascism. Even though the West was rather reluctant to do so, you know. You know, before the Holocaust, amongst Jewish people, you know, it was it was said that no, 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 you know, like the Nazis would never sort of, you know, try to kill off all the Jewish people. You know, it's couldn't be, you know, because, you know, Germany was such a civilized country, you know, and it was. But, you know, what does that mean? <laughs> how important is it, you know, and how, how quickly can civilization degenerate into barbary? You know, barbarism, as Rosa Luxemburg said. So this is something to take seriously. It's not something that is uh, dissipating or is uh, has no influence or power. It is a dangerous uh, tendency, which is nurtured by the established power relationships because um, it acts on behalf of the existing um, uh, power configurations, which generally favor the majority uh, national uh, population in a given country, treating national minorities as if they don't belong. And this is not uh, what Canada wants to be. Canadian people do not want to be uh, American ethno-nationalists, uh, white supremacists. No, this is not our game. And so I think that uh, we uh, can provide an example to the United States of how to deal with uh, such uh, a phenomena as Nazism amongst the national minorities while supporting national minorities in their national identity and nurturing their cultural identity. So this is, you know, uh, how complex things are getting and how serious. Lisa Makarchuk has been active in progressive movements since the 1950s, beginning with the campaigns to stop the Rosenbergs' execution and to oppose nuclear weapons. She's been active freeing political prisoners from fascist Portugal, but is currently more focused on solidarity events in Cuba. Here's what she wrote about signing the petition. I find it a supreme irony that our Canadian forces joining others were in Europe to stop the scourge of fascism-Nazism in World War II, many losing their lives. Members of the Halishina Regiment and followers of Stepan Bandera, an extreme nationalist, who fought with the German SS and others, committing horrendous crimes against their own people, were eventually supported and their ideological inheritors continue to be supported by our government. It appears that the government thought of them as potential allies in the fight against the progressive forces that were taking hold in society starting in the 30s. When the war was over, many of them feared going back to their homes in Ukraine. Great Britain refused to take them 
probably for them having a murderous reputation from their conduct in the war. So they were surreptitiously spirited to Canada without much regard for documents or immigration rules. It was not long before their small numbers appeared to be wielding an inordinate amount of influence and the progressive wing of the Ukrainian community got gradually overwhelmed and has now pretty much disappeared as a unified voice blurring the ideological lines between the two sides. What was an enemy in World War II, which our troops died saving us from, are an ally today influencing policies. Statues have been erected in their honor, such as the one in Edmonton of Roman Shurkevich, a military commander on the Nazi side responsible for the death of some 100,000 Poles. Having been educated in a Western Eurocentric educational system, I only became aware of the deep divisions among the people of Ukraine when I was already well into adulthood. My parents, who originally settled near Stenin, Saskatchewan, in 1928, were welcomed by the Ukrainian community already established there, but with time they were found by this community to be Moscali. Presumably this was something akin to Moscow lovers. My parents never explained to me what Moscali meant, because I don't think they understood it themselves. After two years of denigration, isolation, and material damages inflicted, I fled that community and were welcomed east of Iran, Saskatchewan, by a Dukabor community made up of Russian religious pacifists. Divisions that have run deeply within Ukraine and Canada, the extreme nationalist ideology embraces anti-Semitism, racism, homophobia, and a white supremacist attitude. These values are not Canadian values. Our government, blinded by its anti-socialist and communist biases and now its Russophobia, has found a steady ally in this ultra-nationalist niche, using them and our tax dollars to undermine and stifle and confuse progressive movements. If you, listener, would like to sign the petition, just go to the site coat.ncf.ca and look for it right at the top of the page. And with that, we conclude this special episode of the Global Research News Hour. Thanks to our guests for devoting some of their time. Music this week was Masters of War by Bob Dylan and I'm Not Marching Anymore by Phil Oakes. Global Research News Hour is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show is podcast on radio stations throughout Canada and the United States. If you have questions or concerns about this episode, email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. We leave you now with the song No Man's Land by Eric Bogle. Enjoy the rest of your week and see you again in seven days. The sorrow, the glory, the shame the killing, the dying, it was all done in vain. For Willie McBride it all happened again, and again, and again, and again.